Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. We have a lot of ground to cover in our study of Revelation 6. This morning, our subject is the wrath of God. It is the wrath of the Lamb on a world that rejects Jesus Christ. Now, if you struggle with the subject of God's wrath because you think God is only love and that is all that God ever talks about is this puffy little cloud of of heaven with white clouds and God is just up there waiting to to blow sunshine at you, uh, you're going to struggle a little bit with this text. If you think it is unfair for God to allow famine and sickness and death to come into this world, well, then I want to invite you to listen this morning. I want to challenge you to listen earnestly to our study of the four horses of the apocalypse. It is a study that is grounded in our understanding of Revelation chapter 5 that speaks of God's holiness, God's justice, and his sovereignty over creation. But not many today want to hear about a God who judges. Elton John, he certainly doesn't want to hear about a God that judges. He doesn't want to answer to God for leading countless lives into the homosexual lifestyle, nor does he want to be accountable for his drug use. He was interviewed on NPR. I have my thoughts on that station, but we won't get talking about that this morning. But he was interviewed on NPR by Terry Gross and listen to the transcript. She said to Elton John, You almost left rehab because, well, one of the reasons was when it got to the talk of a higher power, when it got to, as you describe it, the God talk, you felt like that it is just like not for me. His response, yes. And then Terry said to him, and you really thought seriously about leaving. So I'd like to know what upset you so much about the God talk and if you were able to find a way into that talk. Well, here's what Elton John said. Well, the God thing. I was angry because God for me represented punishment. You know, God will punish you for doing this. God will punish you for doing that. I hated the word God and I really resented the word God. And then someone said to me, listen, do you believe in something greater than yourself? And I said, oh, of course I do. There's been so many things in my life that have happened by chance or just, you know, decisions I've made that have been prompted by something inside of my soul. So, of course, I only have to look up in the sky and believe in something greater than myself or I'll go out and walk in the field or look at a mountain. And they say, well, then that's it. That's it use it. That's how I say higher power instead of God. And I went, I can do that. I can do that. It doesn't have to be the punishing God that I learned of in Sunday school. It can be a higher power that sends me messages. And I accepted that and I came to terms with that. And that was very, very important to me. Sad, isn't it? Very sad. It's tragic enough that anyone thinks like this. But this mindset, what bothers me so much, is that this mindset, this type of thinking, is spreading in the church of Jesus Christ. 
You see, the doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the loving creator who hates anything that corrupts, distorts, and damages his wonderful creation. He hates anything that degrades the people that he created in his image. If God does not hate murder, if God does not hate drug abuse, if God does not hate homosexuality, then he is neither good nor loving. He's just simply not. If God does not judge those who abuse children, then he is not good nor loving. That's where Revelation 6 comes in. Because if God is not determined to root these things out from his creation in wrath and judgment, then all the sin, the violence, the enslavement of mankind, it never ends. And then God is not wise, God is not loving, and God is not kind or good. Now, liberals don't like the idea of judgment. They certainly don't. But we need to remind ourselves that the Bible teaches us that God's coming judgment is a good thing. It is something we should celebrate because that is the only way the arrogance of man can be done away with. This is how the oppression, injustice, and the violence of man ends. The very thought that there will come a day when the wicked are put into their place and the weak are strengthened because of their identity and position in Jesus Christ. This is about the best news that there can ever be. A God that is good must be a God of judgment. So we begin this morning with verse 1, where our text says this. It says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, John is still seeing the vision of the throne room of God. John had seen a scroll in chapter 5, sealed with seven seals. Only one person was found worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Only one person was worthy to begin the step-by-step process of snatching control of the world from evil. But this means that before the Lord can establish his kingdom on earth, he's going to have to judge the earth like nothing that has ever been done before. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, I saw. John saw. He saw the lamb open one of the seals. But John didn't just see words, a book with words or a scroll with words. He saw the events of Revelation play out before him. See, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, broke open that first seal. And one of the four living creatures cried out with a voice like thunder, come and see. But that's a little misleading in your text there. Because the words and see, they're not really in the text. Each time a living creature says, come, in verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, and in verse 7, right before the horsemen, he's not talking to John, and he's not talking to Jesus Christ. The better translation would be, come forth, come forth, like a horse being summoned into the arena of the world. Because a horse in scripture is often used as a symbol for war. God is certainly at war with sin. Now, you can see that at this point of the tribulation, the Antichrist has already made his covenant with Israel. The tribulation has started, and this is the first sealed judgment of God. Judgment is coming, but God has everything under control. Now, John saw a white horse, the text says. Notice with me, the rider had a bow. 
but no arrows. A bow with no arrows. And the Bible is telling us that he had a crown, the type of crown you would get for being victorious. The image given to us is of being able to conquer without having to shed blood, false peace. And that is how the tribulation starts out. It will be a time of deception on earth. Talking about this time, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, remember what he said? He said, for when they say peace and safety, then what happens? Sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And didn't Jesus say of this time in Matthew 24, where Matthew 24 records this, and Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. The first seal ushers in the rule of the Antichrist, and he will conquer. He will conquer, but a bow without arrows, a bow with no arrows means he will deceive the nations into following after him. He'll be riding a white horse, a white horse. Remember that the Roman generals back then would ride in on a white horse after a victory in a battle. The Antichrist is going to deceive, convincing the world that he is the Messiah and worthy to be worshipped. Everything that Christ stands for, Satan tries to counterfeit. The Antichrist will make a covenant of peace with the people of Israel so that he can later turn on them, attempting to destroy them. But the peace, it's not going to last, is it? Pick it up in verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see, literally again, come forth. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So the Lamb of God, he opens the second seal, and another living creature calls out, Come forth. And verse 4 tells us that it was granted to the one who sat on the second horse to take peace from the earth. Now, as horrible as these judgments will be, God is absolutely still in control throughout this whole entire thing. This second horse is fiery red, symbolizing the fire and blood of war. But this rider, he's not, he's not given a bow without arrows. That's not what he has. He has what? A sword, a dagger used for killing people in hand-to-hand combat. And again, notice the consistency of the word of God. The Lord Jesus said this in Matthew 24, and this is why we covered Matthew earlier this year. Matthew 24 reads, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. Think about what we have so far. We have war. We have murder, we have bloodshed, but things are about to get a step worse. Verses 5 and 6 tell us in Revelation. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. Again, come forth. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil. And the wine. Now, when Christ broke the third seal, John saw a black horse, but I want you to notice the progression in the text. This is after war has broken out in the world. Desolation and despair will flood the world. 
In the context of chapter 6, it suggests that the voice in the midst of the four living creatures of verse 6 is God, probably God the Father. And the scales in the writer's hand give us the indication that we're talking about starvation and economic inflation. Now, we saw a small, small, little, tiny bit of a taste of this when COVID-19 broke out. You guys remember the most important thing in the world got expensive. Toilet paper got expensive, right? But that is nothing. That is nothing compared to what is coming. The prices here in Revelation are much, much worse. Something that you see in third world countries. Between 8 to 16 times what the prices in the Roman Empire were back in that day. A denarius was the pay of a worker for a full day's work. You could work all day just for a quart of wheat. But even the grain that isn't that good, barley, cheap food for the cattle, that's what that is. Cheap food for the cattle, even that is working all day to only get three quarts. See what the poor would do back in that day? is they would mix in the barley with the wheat just to kind of make it spread out a little bit to make it so it will last. One quart of wheat will feed a person for a meal if they're hardworking. You could work all day just to feed one person for one meal. This is a devastating famine. Meaning those suffering from the famine will only be able to buy limited amounts of food, but there will be nothing left over for other things in life. Given here in the example from the first century of oil and wine, Now, oil and wine were essentials in the first century, but there'd be no money for it. To say it in our language, you could have to work all day just to be able to buy a a loaf of Wonder Bread or something like that, but you'd have nothing left over for anything else. Forget the soap, forget all the other stuff you need in life. This famine will be so severe, even the basics, even the essentials, even enough to sustain life will be hard, hard to come by. The black color of the horse speaks of famine and death. War leads to famine and starvation. That is the pattern all throughout history. And this has been going on for thousands of years. You know, right now, since 2016, because of the civil war in Yemen, there's a massive famine, a massive famine taking place. In 2018, it was reported that already as of then, 85,000 children have died. 85,000 children. They've been dealing with cholera outbreaks, war, a flood, locust swarms. What is that? Locust swarms running through Africa. And even with help and food supplies pouring in from other countries, they say that as many as two to three million people will be short on food. But during the tribulation, this type of starving, it's going to get worse. And not only is it going to be worse, it's going to be global. People will be starving all over the world. Millions will die which is what we see next. The fourth seal starts in verse 7. It says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. The fourth seal brings us to the pale horse, not 
pale white or gray like you sometimes see. But instead, the Greek word chloros is more of a pale yellowish green. So every time you see a white horse, just, just kind of like a pale white horse, when they're talking about this, say, no, that should be yellowish green. It's the color of, of sickness and death. You know, when someone looks yellow, they look sick. They look like they're dying. This is a terrifying scene that Revelation is giving us. See, John saw death and Hades move together across the face of the earth. Now, death, death slays the body and Hades swallows up the soul. Not correct here to translate this as hell. It should be Hades as the new King James has. It is the invisible world of the dead. Now, death and Hades are intended to represent the massive number of deaths that will come upon the earth with the first three horsemen. One-fourth of the population on earth will die. As of right now, there's 7.8 billion people on the earth. That's a lot of people. That means even if it was now, even now, accounting for Christians being removed at the rapture, we're still talking of a death rate into the billions. It's hard to come to terms with the severity of these judgments. It is hard to come to terms with it. The deception... The wars, the disease, the death and destruction. Even verse 8 says, death by the beasts of the earth, wild animals killing people. Nothing in this world history can compare to what is coming. So how could God, a loving God, allow these things to happen? Let's take it a step further. How does God say these things in scripture must happen? How can any sin deserve everlasting punishment? If God is just, how can he punish like this? Let's suppose that a middle school student punches another student in class. What's going to happen? Well, the student is given a detention. I can attest to this. Mr. Rouse gave me many, many detentions. It was a horrible nightmare because then when I got out of middle school, he got promoted to the high school and I met him again. But suppose that during detention, this boy punches the teacher. Now what's going to happen? This is a little more serious. The student gets suspended from school. But then suppose on the way home, the same boy punches a policeman right on the nose. He just whacks him right on the nose. What happens now? Now he finds himself in trouble with the law. But then some years later, this boy is now a man and he's in a crowd and he's waiting to see the president of the United States. And as the president passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the president. Now what happens? He's shot dead by the Secret Service. See, in every case, the crime is precisely the same, but the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. And our sin is not just between us. It is against God. When we sin, we sin against God. He is our creator. He is our life giver. And for those that are not reconciled to God by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, their future is death and everlasting punishment. That's it. So as we look at the severity of God's judgment, we must never forget that God is perfectly just. God is holy. God is fair in punishing evil. And God never, hear this, never lets go of his goodness. He never lets go of his goodness. See, the wickedness of man deserves to be judged. And God is holding off his judgment. God in his mercy and grace is holding off his judgment, showing the world mercy 
in total control. But when God's appointed time comes, when God no longer holds back or restrains the wickedness of man, disaster is about to pour out into this world. Let's take verse 9 in our text. It takes us to the fifth seal. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. This is an interesting text here. These are not church-age believers. These are not church-age believers. These are tribulation saints martyred for their faith because they are facing the greatest persecution the world has ever known. Verse 7 tells us they are under the altar. These are lives that will be given because they belong to Jesus Christ. And in the tribulation, you will either be marked and belong to the Antichrist, or you will stand for Jesus Christ. The, the contrast will be notable. Everyone will know. These will be lives that are given as they preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. And it could be that these souls are under the altar because their lives had been given as a spiritual sacrifice to God as an act of worship. Paul had this kind of thought in Philippians 2 when he said this. He said, yes, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And then remember what he said in 2 Timothy 4. He said, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure. Death is at hand. No matter the meaning intended in Revelation by God for the altar, it's a little tricky text and there's some debate. At this point in the tribulation, these believers will not have been resurrected in their future bodies. That awaits the second coming. And so we see them in verse 10 crying out in the temple, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, Verse 11 Verse 11 is an amazing verse. Several Bible verses should come into your mind. Romans 12, 19 teaches us this. It says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul told the church, he said to the church, since it is a righteous thing that with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and then on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Lord will keep his promises. God always keeps his promises. The Lord will keep his promises to avenge his people. And that's what we're reading here in Revelation about the tribulation saints. But these believers in the coming Messiah will have to wait a little while longer until their fellow servants in Christ are killed for their faith. Each child of God is given the white robe of the overcomer and told to rest until God's appointed time. Now, these white garments, they stand for holiness. They stand for purity. The righteousness of the believers is based on the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result, the result by God's power in us are the righteous acts of the saints. But white robes in this passage, to me, are another indication that when believers die, they must be given temporary bodies until the time of their resurrection in their glorified bodies. 
Imagine if you would, that in the middle of this winter, it's coming up, I hate to tell you that, winter's coming. But imagine if you would, in the middle of this winter, you get this great idea. You decide to go out and explore one of the remote glaciers here in Alaska. You decide this is a good thing. You get your equipment and you convince your family to go with you and you all go out and decide to hike out to one of the glaciers. And just as you reach the cliff at the edge of the glacier, with a spectacular view of miles of that jagged ice and the mountains are just all covered with snow. This terrible storm blows in. But in the midst of the storm, you discover this little gap, this little shelter in the ice where you can hide, where you can feel secure. But even though you are secure, this awesome storm, it continues to rage on and on and on. And you watch it with a kind of trembling and pleasure as it surges and blows out on the distant glaciers. Now, not everything we call fear vanishes from your heart, only the life-threatening part, only the part where you feel like you're in trouble. There remains the, the trembling. There remains the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. And so it is, Christians, that with these tribulation saints in Revelation 6, they've already been killed for their faith. But the fear of God is what is left of the storm. And when you have a safe place to watch right there in the middle of it, hope turns fear into this trembling and peaceful wonder. Let me say it like this. The fireside fellowship is all the better when the storm is howling outside the cottage. This is what we have here in Revelation 6. Tribulation saints now safe because they're with God, but they know the rest of the storm is coming. The storm is still blowing. And this is what we see starting in verse 12, where it says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place the sixth seal is now open and the things we see are some of the images that most people think of when they think of the end of the world a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. The stars of heaven falling to the earth. The sky receded like a scroll and every mountain and island moved out of its place. Now today we can imagine some of these things in our world that could possibly cause these things to happen. A great earthquake shakes the entire globe. The volcanic eruptions spill ash and gas into the atmosphere. Veiling the sun black as sackcloth of hair and the moon becoming like blood with meteors coming down from the heavens. Sackcloth, you remember, was that rough fabric worn by the people of Israel when they would mourn. And one of the most common forms of this was black goat wool. The sun will become black like black goat wool is what it's teaching us. The late figs of verse 13 are figs that are the trees that are on the trees past their season and are easily just blown right off the tree. The sky rolled up or, or split. The sky will appear to roll back in two different directions, probably related to everything else described here with the sun, the moon and the stars. The people then thought of the sky back in the first century as just as it appears. As you go outside and you look at it, they thought of it as a vaulted dome that is over the earth. 
people are going to be terrified, terrified as even the familiar sights of the sun and the moon will betray them. The whole universe is going to seem to be coming apart. These images are nothing new in the Bible. Allow me to read some scripture. Joel said long ago in chapter 2, he said, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand. And in the same chapter, he said again, the earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. Listen to Isaiah 34. It says, all the host of heavens shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like what? A scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. And then just a, a few verses. Allow me to read a few verses from Isaiah 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. And then later on in Isaiah 13, we read this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. But what John sees in the final verses of Revelation 6 I think it's even more terrifying. The complete and utter panic of the entire population of the world. Pick it up with me, if you would, with verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? The Bible is telling us that every type of person, every type of person, the rich and the poor, the elite and the common, the common, every believer is in the same boat. It doesn't matter, the Bible's telling us, what you built for yourself in this life. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. And it doesn't matter if you think you are the greatest thing on the earth. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you have nothing. They will cry out in fear, hiding themselves like hunted animals in the cracks and caves of the earth. Rather than running to God, rather than rushing into God's presence by grace through faith, we see the true nature of man fleeing from the holy God of heaven. Instead of bowing in worship, they will bury themselves in the caves, overcome with fear. And the great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. Who is able to stand? And the answer is only those drawn to the grace of God by the Father. Only those that have been reconciled to God in their position. Only those who have taken up the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. Those who have taken the mark of the beast are doomed and they know it. They know it. They would, the text is telling us, rather have mountains collapse on them. They would rather be killed than to stay alive and endure the wrath of the Lamb in the rest of the tribulation. Because the worst is yet to come. The judgments will be even greater at the end of the tribulation just before Jesus Christ returns to the earth. The great day of God's wrath 
is the tribulation. And these people would rather be killed than be forced to stand before a holy and righteous God. The sky splitting open, the shaking of the earth. This will be a time like nothing the world has ever seen. And even those who follow the Antichrist will know their guilt before God. They will be without hope. On September the 2nd, back quite a few years back, 1990, there was a murder in New York City that shocked the nation. The Watkins family, pictured there from Utah, a father and a mother, they had their two sons with them. They had come to New York City. They wanted to go see the U.S. Open. They wanted to watch some of the tennis matches. And while waiting on this subway platform for the train, so they could just simply go out to dinner, a group of young people came upon them and attacked them. Sherwin, the husband and father, was slashed with a knife. The older of the two sons, 22 years old at the time, went to his mother's rescue because she was being hit and kicked in the face. But when he went to defend his mother, he was stabbed in the chest, and his last words were these. Why did they do this to me? We're just here to have a good time. The judge sentenced four of the attackers to life without parole. It was the toughest sentence possible in New York City at the time. But when the judge issued that sentence, he also issued a statement about our society where he said this. Listen to these words. He said, a band of marauders can surround, pounce upon, and kill a boy in front of his parents, and then stride up the block to Roseland to dance until 4 a.m. as if they had stepped on an insect. And then the judge compared their actions to the work of the devil and then said that these acts, these acts cannot go unpunished. Makes a lot of people uneasy today to talk about the wrath of God. But there can be no turning away from this truth of Scripture. If we are resistant in our own thinking, in our own understanding of the Bible to the idea of God's wrath, we might want to pause for a second and reflect the next time we are outraged about something. Maybe it's just simply our taxes going up. Can you believe they're raising the taxes again? Maybe we're outraged about the protests in this country or the government lockdowns or the liberals constantly trying to turn this into a communist nation. Or even as simple as someone cutting us off in traffic. All of us, everyone in this room, is capable of anger about something. But here's the difference. God's anger is pure. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up with God from time to time. The wrath of the Lamb is not just God in heaven having a temper tantrum like a toddler. It is a way of describing his absolute opposition to all the sin and depravity of man and his coming to set matters right. So here's my encouragement to you. It is to get to know God better through his judgments. Get to know God better through his judgments. What I'm telling you is this, get to know his holiness, get to know his purity, get to know how much God hates sin, and then let that impact your relationship with him. See his love and his grace, even in his judgment. You know, God has been warning mankind for thousands of years that his judgment is coming, and he's written it down for us warned us of it, and even his coming judgment should cause us to examine right now how we live. And then once you get to that point, can I encourage you to rest? 
as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, rest in his peace, knowing that even during the darkest times, God's still in absolute control. And be thankful that God sets a limit on the coming judgment and continue to rely on his strength and his grace, looking to the day when Christ safely calls his people home. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. Pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.